0: Hey guys and girls, this is Jimmy, Keto Couples Kitchen Podcast, coming to you from the kitchen of Keto Couples Kitchen in Lufkin, Texas. As always, quick disclaimer, I am not a doctor. I'm just a dude that's lost 270 pounds in the last 10 years, turned my life around, saved my life. What I share is not medical advice, it's not intended uh to be used to treat any kind of medical condition, of course, always go to your doctor before starting a diet or a lifestyle change or exercise program. What I'm saying is just my N equals one anecdotal experience and experience in talking to other people. I'm just sharing what I've learned. Uh, Take it with a grain of salt. Talk to your doctor. Let's get going. So, this week's episode was intended to be about exercise. I've been posting a lot about my rucking on our social media lately, and, uh, so I was really preparing to do a whole episode on aerobic exercise and, uh, rucking and the fact that you don't have to spend money at a gym and you don't have to, uh, really go into a really detailed workout plan to make some good gains if you want to put it that way. But that got derailed because I went to Walmart. I don't know why but I don't know why I do that to myself but I went to Walmart and I always park at the very back of the parking lot and that kinda goes along with the exercise uh, if I park at the very back of the parking lot, it's going to take me a couple hundred steps just to get to the front door. Anyway, so I did that as usual, and as I'm walking up, I was really kind of tuned in to uh, my surroundings and the people around me. And the first thing I noticed was this man, probably early 60s, uh, had an amputated left leg, and he was struggling to uh, to get out of his truck. Or he'd just gotten out of his truck, he was pulling a trailer and he was trying to do something, uh, but he was struggling. So I offered uh asked him if he needed any help and he didn't uh he didn't need any help. He he kind of uh I'm not saying he seemed proud, but he 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 kinda of gave me the vibe that that he didn't like being asked for help, that he could do it himself, which is fine but you know I couldn't help but to notice uh the am- amputation on his left leg above the knee and his right leg was extremely discolored, extremely red with edema at the lower part of his leg around his ankle all the way up almost to his knee. So 90% sure and he was he wasn't morbidly obese but he was overweight and 90% sure he was dealing with the uh you know, the, the after effects of severe diabetes, uh, and I felt really bad. And then I'm walking up closer to the front of the store and I see a lady in one of the scooters and she's probably late fifties. And I know she's got some heavy stuff. She's got like some, uh, dishwashing, uh, clothes washing detergent and water and stuff like that. And, I offered, and Uh, She's struggling to load everything in her trunk. She'd put everything at the front of the trunk and The heavy stuff was gonna have to go to the back Offered to help her and she was very grateful Uh, So I helped her load it up But you know as as I'm watching her unload and then start watching go into the store uh, I noticed the same pattern Uh, a lot of people in scooters a lot of people on oxygen I saw people on oxygen People on scooters, people anywhere from their 40s to their 60s just struggling to get by and do everyday stuff. And it's really heartbreaking because, you know, I look in their basket and I see the same thing. I see Pop Tarts, chips, full sugar drinks, processed uh, TV dinners, hamburger helper. You know, just the, just the poison, the stuff that we know is poison, canola oil, and instantly I know, you know, what's going on. I know what the cause of this is. I know that it can be fixed, and they can be a new person, and they can feel a lot better really quickly, but people just don't know. I mean, this... There's so much involved in this mindset, in this culture of nutrition that has been created since the 60s, really, that's false, but it's so ingrained in people that they're just confused. I mean, they get bombarded and pulled in a hundred different directions on what they should do to lose weight, what they should do to be healthy, and they don't realize how simple it really is. And the mindset is screwed up. The education is screwed up. And it's it's just heartbreaking. Because you see good people. Really miserable. And literally dying. And you know they can fix themselves quickly. But how do you get through to them? That's. You know, so I want to talk this week about something called hyperpalatable food, and uh, I've got a couple of research articles and you know some documentaries that I've re-reviewed that I've read years ago uh, that I want to cite. Uh, I'll put them in the show notes, and I want to really talk to you about how the cards are stacked against us, how. Everything from what we see on TV to what we hear on the radio to the, even to the colors when we walk into a store, everything is geared to psychologically trigger us to spend money. And they could care less about if it's healthy for us. They want our money. And they want our money, as much of it as they can get, at the least amount of cost to them. So what do you do when you make a product and you want to make as much money as possible off of it? You want to price it as high as you can, but you also want to make it as cheap as you can. We understand that. Yeah, uh, you know, I've seen that years ago with. Uh, you know, I, w- I really have always loved fishing my whole life, and you know, back in the 80s, you would uh, you would go buy a Zebco. 33 which is a little fishing reel and you couldn't kill them in the 70s and early 80s Those things the gears were metal uh, You know, they weren't for big fish, but man, they would last for years and You know, they got into the mass merchants like Walmart Kmart all the all the companies back then and uh, You know, they say we want to crank out as much as these as possible and make as much profit But Walmart's not going to pay us a lot for them. So uh, to make our profit, we got to make them cheaper. So they started taking the gears and and making them out of plastic instead of metal and and just, you know, cutting corners wherever they could. And now you buy one of those things, and uh, you'll be lucky if it lasts one fishing season, and then you might as well throw it away because it's never going to work the same again. And used to, you couldn't kill the things. Uh, But, you know, kind of the same thing in food. If you want to sell somebody uh, a meal for their kids and their family and uh, you know you want to make it to where you can make a whole meal for a family for under ten bucks you're gonna use the cheapest ingredients and you're gonna find the cheapest way to make those ingredients uh, so you can make the maximum profit and unfortunately that means pumping them full of a bunch of chemicals and hyper processing them And, uh, you end up with what's not really food. So, anyway, that's some good material this week. Uh, just wanted to rant a little bit. We'll get started with the episode. Uh, kind of somber tone this morning because it really affected me. Uh, I always see somebody struggling when I go into one of these stores, but it was like, it was heartbreaking. Uh, the guy with the amputation and, uh, and then seeing the the person in their late forties, early fifties on oxygen, and you could tell they're just a good person. And and I don't want anybody to think it's that that these problems spur from laziness and nobody should shame anybody because, you know, some of the most successful CEOs drivers in industry in the world are obese. You can't tell me that somebody that takes a company and works twenty hours a day and builds it into a Fortune five hundred company uh, You can't tell me they're lazy because they're obese. Uh it's just lifestyle. And a lot of the lifestyle sure it's a choice for some, but for most people they just don't know. And that's why podcasts like this are out there. That's why people like me do what we do. Probably never make a dime off of any of this, and that's all cool. But, you know, like I said, the cards are stacked against us, and grassroots is the only way we're going to get the word out until, fingers crossed, one day the truth becomes mainstream. All right, let's jump into the episode. We'll try to cheer it up a little. Here we go. So you hear a lot of people, and I've said it over the years, that once you've been on keto for a while, your taste buds change. And I believe that for a long time. But, you know, the more I read about it, the more I look into it, I don't think your taste buds change. I think they just start working correctly again. And I think one of the problems that our taste buds And our perception of food gets distorted is because of today's topic and it's hyper palatable foods and I don't know how long this is gonna be I'm gonna try to keep it fairly brief and just a 30,000 foot view of this subject but you can go off on so many rabbit holes because this whole issue of hyper palatable hyper processed foods ultra processed foods creates so many problems and ties into so much of the obesity and diabetes and Alzheimer's and all these autoimmune diseases and the epidemic that it has become. And as I said in the intro, it's, you know, it's to turn a profit on you. But back to hyper palatable foods, in a nutshell, these foods are made to pop. They're made to, you know, when you get a burger from a nationwide fast food joint it's just the flavor just bombs you when you buy a bag of tortilla chips or a bag of uh wavy potato chips you know the flavors just pop out at you lots of salt lots of msg flavor enhancers uh you know they they're just gonna pop out at you they're gonna They're really going to grab you and the flavors are going to hit you and it's going to create a cascade of all of these feel-good, you know, serotonin and, and all this stuff going on in your body that makes you want more and more. But the problem is the majority of them are nutritionally void. Like you're getting no nutrients out of these things. You're just, you know, you're just shoveling crap into your mouth that tastes good, Yeah, whatever, you know, whatever good is. And, uh, but, you know, your body's not getting satisfied. And the problem is, when you stimulate yourself with these super strong tasting foods with all of this additives and all of these enhancers, it makes regular food kind of boring. You know, if you ate birthday cake every day of the week for every meal you know you know you're probably not gonna like you know what's a what's just a plain old dessert you know if you have birthday cake all the time you're probably not gonna like just a sweet bread or a piece of raisin bread or something like that you know it's just you want birthday cake you want something that pops out at you if you potato chips all the time you know, you're probably not going to like, you know, some air fried zucchini. You know, I want, I want it to pop. And your body gets trained to that and it becomes addictive. So uh, there's this article, and the article is The Addiction Potential of palatable Foods. Uh, the main researcher is Ashley N. Gerhardt, uh, Carol Davis, Rachel Kusher, Kelly Brunel. I'll uh, university. So this is a really good article, and I'll put a link to it. It's not an article. It's actually a research study. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But uh, they've got this table of the similarities between hyperpalatable food and addictive drugs. Talking heroin, cocaine. Uh, they both activate dopamine and opo- opioid neural circuitry. So, we, a lot of you probably heard it, but they did brain scans, and uh, sugar lights up the same part of the brain that cocaine or heroin does. Uh, it is what it is. Uh, they both trigger artificially elevated levels of reward. So, that goes back to the serotonin, I mean, dopamine, you know, they, they you eat this hyper palatable food and just like i said it's like instantly rewarding i want more i want more uh absorbed rapidly into the bloodstream these things are so processed uh they don't have the fiber they don't have you know your body they're all the work's done for you, you eat them and they go straight in so if you're diabetic or pre-diabetic which the majority of americans are you know this stuff's going to immediately affect your blood sugar it's going to immediately start doing harm Uh, They alter neurobiological systems. They cause uh, compensatory mechanisms that result in tolerance, combined with additives to enhance rewarding properties. Uh, They elicit cue-triggered craving. So that goes back to a, a book called The Power of Habit that I suggest everybody read. And cues are really important for triggering habits, whether good or bad. Uh, and I, you know, the, the better my health gets, the more I get in tune with these cues. I recently quit vaping. I smoked from age 19 to about 35 and, uh, I took up vaping, uh, in my late thirties and was able to quit smoking. And then I quit vaping for several years. And for some reason I started back. I don't know why, but, uh, I recently quit it again it's been a couple of weeks and uh, it's really interesting and frustrating to to uh, realize the things that trigger like I'm drinking coffee right now Uh, when I get a cup of coffee it triggers me to vape after I eat it triggers me to vape Uh, there's several things I've noticed and it is weird and scary how quickly a bad habit will form Good news is, a good habit can form just as quickly. You just got to do the due diligence. But, you know, so, uh, consumed in spite of negative consequences. So, these are similarities between hyperpalatable food and drugs. Uh, So, People know drugs are hurting them, but they keep doing it because of the addictive qualities they are hooked on them. And same thing with sugar and hyperpalatable foods. Uh, They're consumed in spite of the negative consequences. Uh, And I think that goes back to education. Uh, People aren't educated. And they're pulled in so many different directions with so many different dietary recommendations. And a lot of them are just intentionally misleading, and uh, they just keep doing what they're doing. Uh, definition of insanity, what was it? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome? Well, you, you see people doing the same thing over and over again, and it's never going to change if they don't make a change. Uh, consumed in spite of a desire to cut down. That goes back to the addiction. Drugs, we might as well call this hyperpalatable food a drug. Uh, impact disadvantaged groups to a disproportionate degree and this this is sad uh, I would highly recommend you look up food deserts there are whole communities in inner city that you know they don't have transportation uh, they don't have a car to jump in and you know within a several block radius of their home there's nothing but fast food there's no grocery stores. There's, you know, like this kind of crap's all they can get. Uh, they cause high public health costs, and that's true. I recommend, as I said in an earlier episode, read the uh, Chris Cresser book, Unconventional Medicine, and he goes into the details on how this epidemic can bankrupt our country and our whole economic system. Uh, exposure in utero... Can result in long-term alterations and this is the one that scares me the most because we're guilty of it my wife and I are still guilty of it we are uh, grandkids you know we still have this habit you know at Halloween we buy them sugary candy and my wife has snacks for when the grandkids come over and they're not the healthiest things in the world and you know I see People giving their children their, their primary diet is chicken nuggets and Happy Meals and and Lunchables and stuff like that. And I read an article, and I'll have to see if I can find it. Uh, if I can, I'll put it in the show notes, where a like two-month-old child was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, uh, which means they inherited metabolic syndrome, pre-diabetes from their parent uh, because, you know, normally this type 2 diabetes, this this condition is, you know, we call it the silent killer, takes decades. And this kid had it like two or three months. This kid was like three months old and, and weighed like, I don't know, a lot, like 30 pounds or something. And uh, they inherited type 2 diabetes, uh, and that's scary and you know we say the damage is being done pre-teens and in teens and a lot of times that youthful metabolism and youthful activity levels uh, as far as the way they physically look uh, can can kind of outrun the uh, the bad diet but we've got a saying that you can't outrun a bad diet and that's true and it catches up with them that's the freshman 15 and and it happened to me, and I've seen it happen over and over again. Uh, that's one of my passions: is how do we find out a way t- to get parents and grandparents to take this serious? That they're they're doing the damage to the kids starting at a very early age. But anyway, a couple of the uh, the quotes from this this research study says further the increasing prevalence of chemicals flavor enhancers and lab developed compounds in the food supply has led to the question of whether ultra processed food should no longer be called food and should instead be relabeled as food like products and go back listen to that again and you know they're really suggesting that this stuff not even be called food and we're talking about the ultra-process, the chips, the tortilla chips, the pop-tarts, all of this crap. Another quote, as industrialized, industrialization occurred and food-related technology evolved, the environment changed from one with limited access to calorie-dense foods to one with the abundance of artificially elevated levels of fat, sugar, salt, caffeine, and flavor enhancers in the meals we eat. And that's so true. Food, even a century ago, was food that you killed. Food that you picked. Food that you dug up. Food that you cooked. Now, I mean, thank God for modern technology, but now it's like there's a fast food place on every corner. Uh, People seem to have no problem paying double the price to have it. I mean, they don't even get off their couch. They have it delivered to their house. And, uh, you know used to used to good quality food you think about the starving kids in the middle east you know how you know all they can afford and all they can get from humanitarian efforts is rice and beans and and uh so good nutrient and calorie dense food is hard for them to come by it was like that for us not too long ago but now it's like Like I said, they're making this stuff as cheap as possible, and one of the cheapest things you can put in something is sugar or cornstarch or corn products or seed oils. Uh, So they're going to put the cheapest stuff in there as possible. So this stuff is extremely calorie-dense, not very nutrient-dense, has a lot of artificial crap in it that's cheap to make, and our bodies just aren't made to eat that stuff. Not to say you can't enjoy a treat every now and then or a cheat, I'm doing quotations, a cheat meal or cheat day or whatever. I mean, do what works for you, but we got people eating this stuff daily. Their whole diet consists of this crap, and you see what it's doing. Uh, the conclusion to this survey, I mean to this uh, research, in summary, although highly processed foods differ from traditional conceptualization of addictive drugs in some ways, such as lack of intoxication, the degree of overlap is significant and compelling. In addition to neurobiological and behavioral similarities, hyperpalatable foods and addictive substances both trigger artificially high levels of reward, cause biological compensations that result in tolerance, and become linked with associated cues. Factors that increase the addictive potential of substances, such as lack of cultural context, frequent consumption, and early age of use, are also relevant to highly processed foods. Further, the components that increase the public health consequences of alcohol and nicotine are also present in the modern food environment, such as the ease of accessibility, increased social uh, acceptability, heavy marketing, and lower cost of high-calorie foods. Due to the similarities between highly processed foods and addictive drugs, successful policies in reducing the impact of addictive drugs may also be useful in combating food-related problems. For example, tobacco consumption was significantly reduced in the United States when Uh, Effective individual treatments uh, were combined with tobacco-focused interventions such as barring cigarette machines, increasing taxes, and limiting marketing. Uh, Similar interventions have been proposed in response to the obesity epidemic, such as reducing nutrient-poor foods in school vending machines, implementing a soda tax, and reducing marketing and high-calorie foods to children. Given the similarities between highly processed foods and tobacco, these approaches may also prove effective in reducing the public health consequences of excess food consumption. There you go. That's their words, not mine. Very good article until the last three or four sentences, in my opinion. Uh, I kind of lean libertarian, so I don't think the answer is taxing people and telling them what to do. I think the answer is education and and that's what we're trying to do here. So, you know, I respect their opinion, but uh, I'm, not, I'm never going to recommend taxing people into compliance. Uh, we want people to want to help themselves, and the best way to do that is to be educated. All right, we will dig in. So that's a, an overview of hyper-palatable foods, uh, the addictive qualities of it, and and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the corruption uh, when it comes to this whole thing. So I wanna uh, quote an article by uh an amazing reporter and, and researcher Nina Tischulz and uh also talk about uh this guy named Ansel Keys, who was a really famous researcher and doctor and PhD and uh he was kind of responsible for the whole low fat, low cholesterol recommendations that really that really uh formed the basis of the food pyramid, and and our government recommendations that the whole world ended up adapting, and it was just, you know, almost a genocide, and uh, we'll talk about the corruption involved in that, and Ansel Keys' stubbornness, and, you know, wanting to prove his point, and skewing data, and uh, researchers being paid off, and, and government cover-ups, it, it's just crazy. Uh, We'll get into that a little bit in the next segment. See you in a minute. So, I promised you, and I teased a little bit of uh, conspiracy and a little bit of flawed science. Uh, So we'll go into, really quickly, I'm going to try not to stretch this out too long, but one of the fundamental flaws that was made decades ago that Honestly, like in the words of Tim Noakes, has become a genocide, and that is what I think is modern times known as my plate. Uh, used to be called the food pyramid. Well, it all started, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm as always. This is a thirty thousand foot view. It goes way more detailed than this, but you know, in 1955, uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower suffered a heart attack. Uh, just two years after he'd been elected. Uh, Heart disease, you know, before the turn of the 20th century was almost unheard of, and it was really concerning people. And then you have the U.S. president who has a heart attack in office, and people freaked out. The government freaked out. Now, we should know on this lifestyle and with the knowledge we have now we should know that the rise in prevalence of seed oils was directly fueling this heart disease growing epidemic and we'll talk about that on another episode but the polyunsaturated fatty acids uh, especially from highly processed seed oil starting with cotton seed oil in the 1910s uh, and then you know all the other uh, by the way there is no vegetable oil it's seed oil canola corn Uh, grape seed oil, cotton seed oil, all that is seeds. Uh, They just put vegetable on there to trick you into thinking it's healthy. It is as bad or worse than sugar. But anyway, you know, the real underlying cause most likely was this prevalence of seed oil because it's cheap. Once again, these companies want to produce food for you that is as cheap as possible for them to make, and seed oils are way cheaper than lard or fat, butter. But anyway, Eisenhower has a heart attack and the government decides, you know, the government, every time they decide to jump into something, you know, it turns out so well. But they decide we've got to do something about this. So they start forming a committee and uh, to investigate this rise in heart disease. And there's a brilliant, prominent researcher scientist named Ansel Keys and he's won a Nobel Prize, he's brilliant, and he's also flamboyant and he's also got clout and he immediately starts leading the charge and he has this hypothesis that fat and cholesterol is the problem. He gives the analogy that just like a plumber, like if you pour your fat down the, uh, like your bacon fat, if you pour it down the drain, hits that cold pipes, that cold water, and it solidifies and eventually clogs your pipe up. He says that's what's happening when you're eating fat and cholesterol. So he starts research to support this cholesterol fat link to heart disease hypothesis. And he has the clout. And honestly, for everything I've read, he's he was a bully. Uh, there was people out there saying sugar, vilifying sugar. There was people out there, you know, with researchers giving several different takes on this. And you know, from what I've read, he would belittle some of them, uh, try to attack their credibility, uh, maybe even ruin some people's careers for daring to uh, object to his hypothesis. So. He goes to the Mediterranean, and he's kind of the grandfather of the Mediterranean diet, which isn't necessarily bad. But he goes to the Mediterranean, and he studies 22 countries, and he studies their diet, hoping that, because he knows that there's some blue zones, and blue zones are uh, areas where people routinely have a higher uh, longevity, uh, people that live over 100, uh, there's a few of them. There's in Chile, uh, I believe Okinawa, Japan at least used to be one, Loma Linda, California, uh, Crete, a lot of the Mediterranean area. So these are called blue zones. Coincidentally, there's blue zones in Chile that eat like high, high amounts of fat. Uh, I believe also like the Inuit uh, up in Alaska and far North America. And then there's also blue zones where they eat large amounts of carbohydrates and large amounts of vegetables. So, But he believes the Mediterranean is going to support his hypothesis. So he goes and studies 22 countries. After his studies are concluded, he releases the seven-country study. So what, right off the bat, what, what kind of seems off on that? He studied 22 countries, and he releases the famous... A seven country study that's because out of 22 countries 15 of them did not support his hypothesis so he cherry picked the seven that did and the most standout country that supported him the most was Crete and he went to Crete three different times a week at a time and studied their eating habits and they were eating low fat not much meat, not much dairy, and you know it was a blue zone. So that's part of the support of his uh, hypothesis is how great the health is in Crete. Uh, What he failed to mention and whether this was intentional which it really seems like it was or if it was pure coincidence when he went there was during Lent and during Lent they abstained for religious reasons from a lot of dairy and a lot of meat, I believe during the Lent they uh fish and uh I believe they 'll eat fish and seafood, but they won 't eat uh meat from um uh, you know beef or lamb or or pork or chicken so uh so, you know that skewed the data because that wasn 't their regular diet that was a special time of the year when they were eating a special diet but Anyway, him being the famous person he was, him having the clout he was, he influenced, you know, and I'm skipping forward a lot, He uh, and a lot of this I will post a link in the show notes to a uh, great article. It's several years old now, but it's still amazing by Nina Teicholz, uh talking about all this, and it goes into great detail. But anyway, he influenced what became the food pyramid so this, uh, this Senator Representative uh, George McGovern uh, was head of the McGovern Committee and they were tasked with coming up with dietary recommendations for the United States of America. And they ended up coming up with what became the Food Pyramid. And I believe that was around 1980, 78, 80, somewhere in there. And not only, once they implemented the Food Pyramid, not only did heart attacks continue to skyrocket, diabetes suddenly became on the same trajectory, cancer, the same trajectory. It was—it's literally, in my opinion, and from what I've heard, Tim Noakes' opinion—it's literally a genocide because, you know, we we took away we vilified fat and. You know, they had a recommendation of the vast majority of your calories coming from carbohydrates and eating a ton of grains every day. And all this stuff is inflammatory. We know that all of the stuff they recommend you eat is what's causing the problem. It's causing the autoimmune disease. It's causing the inflammation. It's causing the, the chronic disease. And you know, uh, back to Chris Kresser's book, Unconventional Medicine, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, I believe he said, you know, before this food pyramid recommendation, there was like practically zero juvenile type 2 diabetes cases in the United States. And within a decade of implementing, there was like 50,000 a year. Uh, And then if you look at the diabetes chart, it's just it's crazy Uh, It is I saw it with my mom I told you one of the driving factors to me doing this is watching my mom die from complications from type 2 diabetes and my mom was You know, she was skinny when she was younger, but and she had me a little later in life I believe she was in her early to mid 40s when I was born, but I remember my mom Around you know around that 1980 time, I was around nine ten years old. But I remember what we would eat, and we would eat eggs and bacon. Yeah, she'd make these homemade biscuits, uh, but eggs and bacon for breakfast, and it, it was real food. And and then that food pyramid hit, and my mom was probably in the 140s at the time, weight wise. The food pyramid hit; it scared the hell out of her. And all of a sudden, we have these snack well cookies at the house, and we're eating oatmeal for breakfast, and egg whites, and you know, my dad hated it, but I noticed the food change in our house, and I noticed more of this low-fat crap, and which meant more sugar, and I saw my mom go from 140s to 180s, probably over 200 at one point, or at several points, and she developed type two diabetes, uh, and I watched it happen to her. I didn't have a clue what was going on uh, myself. I was always a little chubby, but myself, I packed on weight after that, and hunger was just crazy. You know, I bl- and for years I blamed it on you know adolescence and growth spurts and all that, and it may have played a contributing role, but yeah, it was the food we were eating, and we were conned. And and you see it happen, and it's, man, it's been 50 years, and it's still ingrained in people's heads. And the government slowly starts changing stuff on the down low. Like, a few years ago, they took away the, you know, if you read the back of labels, it tells the daily recommendations uh, on ingredients. Well, on the down low, they took away the cholesterol, because they proved probably 20 years ago that... The cholesterol you eat does not necessarily affect your blood cholesterol because your body wants to make the amount of cholesterol that it thinks it needs, and that's based on your lifestyle and based on your genetics. So if you don't eat enough of it for your body to get your cholesterol up, it'll just simply make it because cholesterol is critical for your health. So uh, if you eat a bunch more than you need, then you're just going to waste it it's just gonna waste it's not gonna like make your blood cholesterol go up so they kind of on the down low just took that off like no longer do they have a limit on cholesterol some of the older labels still say that but anyway uh i mean it's sickening but it is what it is but we have to educate people now so there there's a little story a true story about how one man uh, who intimidated and bullied and skewed data to get his way and it influenced the government. And the really scary part is these blue zones like Okinawa and stuff, like countries like the Philippines, Japan, even China now, Russia. A lot of these countries didn't have any problem with diabetes and 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 no epidemic Australia but you know the United States is kind of the leader in the world and they put out these guidelines and they're like okay we're gonna mimic what the United States says so the whole world pretty much implemented this food pyramid in one way or another and everybody started getting diabetes everybody started getting heart disease it affected the whole world this one man potentially is responsible for millions of deaths, mass murder and it is what it is he may have been brilliant but you know that's part of the scientific process peer review you know you you put something out there that you believe in you present the evidence and you you know your peers agree with you or disagree uh, And it's reviewed, and and this guy used intimidation to get his way. I'm sure he had good intentions initially, but it got to the point where he was convinced that his way was the right way, and he was going to do whatever he could do to get his way. And it ended up costing millions of lives. And we're still seeing the repercussions of this. With the mentality, I was talking to a church mate just the day before yesterday, and his fiance, uh, you know, was saying she wants to do keto, but he's stuck on the low fat thing, and he doesn't. He's smart dude, and and nothing malicious. He just is still buys into it. And you know, I told him, hey, how about we talk about a science based uh, lifestyle that is not you know based on lies from sixty years ago and he just kinda like looked shocked like deer in the headlights but he thinks I'm joking but it's the truth I mean this is 60, 70, 80 year old science that's been proved wrong over and over again peer-reviewed studies you know and randomized control trials just meta-analysis just everything has proven this theory wrong but it's still ingrained in people's heads So, like I said, grassroots effort is how we overcome this. And then, you know, I'm going to wrap it up, but we, I won't go into a bunch of detail, but I'm going to post a link to another article, Uh, it should be the last link, and you really should read it. It's from the New York Times, like them or not, but let me get to it, sorry. It is called, How the Sugar Industry Shifted the Blame to Fat. From the New York Times, it's a 2016 article, but it talks about, and this is tied in with this Ansel Keys and Seven Country Study and all of, and food pyramid. It talks about how the sugar industry—I'm talking the big dogs, the big soda companies, the big candy companies—how they pumped money into a Harvard research study and convinced them to skew their data to vilify fat. When the evidence was there and people were screaming at the top of their lungs that sugar is the villain they actually paid researchers off at Harvard to vilify fat and that led to support these low-fat theories, these low-cholesterol theories, and influence government policy, and in turn, millions of people die. So, there you go. I, I wanted to go into the article, but this, you know, this episode's already an hour long. So, uh, take the time to read it. It's pretty good. Uh, you can actually look up the actual declassified. Uh, study data or the, the report and it, it's like some crap off a Jason Bourne movie They, uh, you, know, you, you see the report that was declassified in names and lines are blacked out so no telling what all was said in this but it's scary that our lives are played with for profit but it doesn't surprise me anywho hyper palatable food we'll conclude in one second thank you In conclusion, all of this should piss you off, it should really piss you off that your health and your family's health have been played with, have been toyed with for profit. It pisses me off, but there's nothing I can do about it, the past is a past, you know, I can't bring my mom back, I can't bring all the loved ones back, but I can. Help the people, myself, and the people I love that are struggling, and even the people I don't know. I've got a friend who hadn't been a friend for long, but met him through another mutual friend. That is, you know, the guy. I won't say any names, but he he was over six hundred pounds. Uh, had a had a really bad accident a few years ago, and which made him bedridden for a while, which packed on a couple hundred pounds. He was already obese and And he's dealing with diabetes. he just got out of the hospital with uh you know some necrosis on on his foot, <clears throat> really close to losing his foot in his thirties and you know he can turn this around now, I'm not a doctor, but I'm gonna try to help him as much as I can uh and because of our once again our wonderful government getting involved in things like health care insurance i mean uh, he doesn't have the best insurance in the world, and he can't afford it. So he's kind of in a catch twenty-two. He needs the insurance to be able to get healthy so he can go to work, but he can't go to work because he's not healthy and he can't afford the insurance. So and we see more and more people. So, you know, I'm not I'm not a believer in higher government control, but something I believe they're the cause of the problem for this insurance and healthcare fiasco we're in. And uh they're sticking their nose in it and and causing the whole thing to go haywire and now people can't get health care, so I'm not an advocate of universal health care, but something's got to be done. I mean, we can't have people dying if you're supposed to be the greatest nation in the world, and, and we can't even take care of our people uh it's a, you know my my answer is the government needs to step the hell out of it and and let the free market work it out if you have some true competition. Uh, this this crap won't happen. Instead of insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies calling all the shots. But anyway, I'm on a rant. I don't want to see this guy lose his life, lose his leg at 35 years old. You know, less than 40 because he can't get help. And definitely because he's been lied to his whole life on, on what he's supposed to do to be healthy. But anyway... You can be pissed, I can be pissed at all this, but at the end of the day, the knowledge is out there now. We just have to look for it, and we have to follow it. So what you've got to start doing today is realizing food is fuel. Food is fuel for your body. Quit letting food be a damn entertainment for you. Yeah, you can enjoy birthday cake, or you can enjoy a snack, or go out to eat occasionally, but on a day-to-day basis, I'm putting this stuff in my body to fuel my body. So is this crap I'm eating from big fast food chains, or uh, pouring hot water in a cup and eating something that you can make in 30 seconds, is that fueling my body, or is that poisoning my body? And only you, on a day-to-day basis, can make that decision, and then... It's just like spreading the gospel. You've you got to educate people because people don't know and people are lied to. People are pulled in so many directions. They don't know what to believe, so they don't believe anything. It's paralysis by analysis. So in conclusion, it's up to you. It's up to you to take control of your own health. And then it's up to you. We have an obligation, just like we have an obligation to share the the word, you know, to share Christ's love with other people and to help other people be saved. We have an obligation to help our fellow man and to educate them. And this is where it starts. So listen to this, the whole three people that listen to my episodes, take that to heart. You have an obligation. You know, we are failing if we don't in whatever way spread the knowledge because you know just like bringing people to salvation if you spread the knowledge to one person that changes their life and they don't die of diabetes in the next 20 years and then they can pass it on to others that's grassroots that's how this happens i love all you guys we'll see you next episode thank you